I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. My name is Elon Jacobson, and deal-making is in my DNA. I'll be here each week talking with entrepreneurs and deal-makers about the crazy obstacles they've faced along their paths, and whether it's nature or nurture driving their success. Expect the unexpected on a deal-maker's DNA. All right. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of A Dealmaker's DNA. Um, I've got an exciting one today. I am joined by a colleague of mine who works at Firepower, absolute boss, someone who I, uh, you know, give, give me a run for my money, uh, uh, you know, Stella Millis. So, Stella, thank you uh, so much for joining me. Thanks a lot. I, I thought I've been pretty. Ni- I've been holding back, actually, Elon. I, you know, hey, I never said you weren't nice. I think I'm nice as well. <laughs> <laughs> Some people just, um, you know, misinterpret intensity as uh, aggression, but it's just intensity, right? Yeah. Well, so, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so, so Stella, I, I want to start off. I usually give the overview of people's backgrounds, but as we discussed prior to this, I don't know a lot of your background outside of. You know, obviously the last position you held and now obviously you're working with firepower. So just maybe quickly touch on your professional background before that. And uh, and then we'll jump into, uh, you know, how you got started. So I, I actually didn't start off in neither one of this world or my previous world. I actually went to school for civil engineering and I went to school and you're, you're, you're probably just a little bit younger than me, just a little bit along, but you wouldn't have remembered this, but this was back in the time when it wasn't popular for women to be in engineering. And, you know, we were actually told you shouldn't be. And actually there was like big shootings that happened at McGill University back then, 1988, 89. I'm not sure if that's come up in history, but there was this guy who just went and shot women who were taking, who were in school for engineering. So it was a really strange time. And I remember, you know, at the time it was just maybe three women in the program that I was taking at the time and the end of that shooting. And, you know, there were two lines um, and I was somewhere in the middle. There were the feminists and then there were people who just didn't think women should be doing this. And I was like, I just like engineering. I just want to go to school. Just let me learn. So uh, it was really a strange time. But by the time, you know, that all happened, I I was the only woman left standing. And um, it was a bit of an obstacle getting through it, but I enjoyed it. I did. Getting into the profession was was difficult, even though I graduated with honors, top of my class, actually excelled in mathematics. I probably should have gotten 100%, but I got 99. It was just, it was my thing. So did a couple of gigs in sort of the municipal part of engineering. And then I decided to kind of just go off on my own. And uh, my dad connected me with um, some developers and some real estate and construction guys. And so basically I went into Lawrence Park and I did a bunch of design work. Back then it was all done by hand. They didn't even have AutoCAD. And I did a bunch of nice retrofits for those older homes in Lawrence Park. And um, that kept me busy for a good three years. And I really liked that, going in, doing additions, doing the interior design. And throughout all that, I got an opportunity to teach at Seneca College, actually. One of my professors in math, when I was taking it in school, went off to Seneca College and he says, look, there's an opportunity. No one ever wants to teach physics, okay? So you have an opportunity, you're working for yourself, why don't you come in and teach physics? So did a little bit of that, taught physics, kind of uh, worked as a professor at Seneca while I was consulting for about five years. 
ended my career because you know what they say, those who can, can, those who can't teach. And I realized I need to get out of this. This can't be the end of my future. And it could have been because my last gig was going off to King City Campus and develop a pilot program for the commercial underwater skills divers. They basically, we needed to sort of structure math so that these guys could understand it because it was life and death, but really they weren't mathematics guys. So I had a lot of fun doing that. And then I had an opportunity of, with a partner at Grant Thornton, used to be Don Raymond, had a little bit of issue internally with some partners and said, look, I need you to come in, do a little bit of forensic work. I had known him from 10 years ago, just in front of the family came in and um, need you to find some money and took about three months. And I found about four or five million of the money and traced it and realized I was really good at this. And so my career started off in forensics. And from there, I kind of stuck with this partner for about 13 years. He was uh, a licensed insolvency trustee, a restructuring and turnaround professional. And um, he's the kind of the guy who gave me the leg up mentored me and uh, went to school to become uh, a trustee. It's actually, back then, it was quite strenuous. People don't realize how much education you need, but it took about five years to get that. A lot of studying, a lot of hard work, pretty much very comparable to getting a law degree and practicing. So did that from 1997 to just this year. So a little over 20 years, I guess. And um, here I am now. You guys got me to come over here. So it was very quick. It, it, you know, I just kind of did the Coles note version. But that's- Yeah, I mean, for, for those that don't know, we, we got introduced to you when you were on the other side of the table as a, a trustee. And we landed up buying a business, you know, that, that you were acting as a trustee on. And, you know, thank goodness we convinced you to, to, to join us. And, and uh, you know, we're looking forward to the, you know, the continued uh, efforts on that private equity restructuring side of, uh, of firepower. So, you know, hearing your story and, you know, you being around a whole bunch of, of male-dominated, I guess, industries and schooling, you're more than used to bossing around men, I, I take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure you're going to ask me this. Uh, look at me already preempting your questions. You know, what was one of the best advice you've been given, right? Is that going to be one of your questions? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Bossing you around and telling you, you're going to ask me this. So, you know, yes, you are right. And I'm telling you, the best advice I was given is don't show any fear. It was very scary. It was very scary being around male dominated. And, and look, you know, I'm not the smartest person in the world. You know, surround yourself with smart people. Many times I was the only woman at the table. And so the best advice I was given is, you know what? Don't let them smell fear. And you could be trembling inside, but you walk into that boardroom. And even if you're a nobody, you walk into that boardroom and you pretend like you're a somebody and people will just generally let their guard down. So I, I found that was probably a good piece of advice because it was, it was very scary and intimidating. But at the end of the day, people are people. Let's take a step back because like, I, I view you as a fairly fearless person. I'm sure that's developed over time. But Talk to me about your childhood. I mean, you know, what made you you? I mean, even going into engineering, which is very atypical, obviously something gave you the confidence as a child to do that. So where were you born? Talk to me about what that early childhood looked like. My parents were both uh, immigrants. They came here from Greece. And my dad always tells the story that he came to Canada with just, uh, you know, a suitcase and $20. Got my mom pregnant. You know, we always hear that story, you know, that which was kind of non-traditional, but we came here for a while. When I was 
I was the youngest of three girls. Um, we did actually go back to Greece for five years. My dad had his own business. He was uh, a mechanic, actually did quite well by buying all of his properties. He had um, some really nice properties in downtown Toronto, had a shop there. So made a lot of his money for making some good decisions by always buying his real estate. That was good advice he was given. So he's been an entrepreneur, but you know, I would say I was sort of faced with a lot of challenges right from the beginning. You know, I spent my first five years living in Greece, coming back to Canada just because of some tragedy that happened. So we decided to come back to Canada and I'm five years old. I don't know any English and I'm, and I'm a fat little girl. I'm really fat. So, yeah. And so, you know, my mother grew up, she was 90, but um, she just, like most Greek mothers, they wanted to feed their kids. But um, I was really fat. And I remember I wanted to be a, a ballerina. And I remember I, we probably went to about six or seven ballet schools and I could see the looks on everyone's face when I walked in. I could see all the cute little ballerina girls and I couldn't understand it. I was like, okay, five times the size of those girls. But my mother was very determined. We went all over the city to try and see if she could get me into a school. And we were just turned down everywhere. My mom didn't give up. She just kept going and going. So that wasn't going to happen. I was not going to be a ballerina. But instead, she got me into music school, Royal Conservatory of Music. Didn't matter how big you were. And um, that probably gave me my something to really kind of go into. I really excelled at that. I was one of the youngest um, individuals who graduated from the Royal Conservatory of Music at the age of 16. No, this is, I, I didn't even know you did that. So this is, uh, this is all news to me. <laughs> I know that. So I did. I was competing with 20-year-olds. So And were you playing? In a, what, what were you playing? Oh, Beethoven, Bach, classical. So, so piano, yeah. Piano, yeah. Old, good old-fashioned piano. So I practiced. Like, look, I was determined. And you can do anything you want by just, maybe I wasn't the best pianist. I may have not been the most creative, but I put in five hours a day, every day from the age of six years old until 16, because I wanted to be the best. And I was. As you know, we're going to debate the topic of you could be anything you want to be. Because my answer to that would be you were born that way with that attitude and that perseverance. But let's touch again on, on, on you said you, you had a, you know, a bit of a tougher childhood and there were some things you had to overcome. You know, I'm a huge believer that obstacles as a child leads to adults with more intestinal fortitude that can deal with challenges better. You know, when, when I look back and think of the all-American athlete and Barbie doll that I went to school with and look at what they're doing now, they're not the successes of the individuals that, that have to struggle a little more. So how much do you think, A, being the youngest child, again, I didn't know you had two older sisters, how much do you think the younger child and some of those obstacles played a role into, you know, you being the person you are today? Yeah, my, my two older sisters, they're about four or five years older than me. So they made a lot of mistakes. I got to see all their mistakes. I was always kind of trying to be left behind and there was no way I wanted to be left behind. So I kind of tried to grow up, I think, quicker than I should have. You know, we came from a family where my dad worked hard. He was successful, but my dad still behaved like we were blue collar immigrants who had no money. And he didn't care what everyone else said. I'm like, can I have this? No, you can't have that. Why do you want that? We don't need that. No. So it's it's kind of funny. We, we grew up having money, but my dad made us feel like we didn't. 
he's like, you got to work for it. I started working from the age of 13 because he said, if you want that, to me, I think that's frivolous. Go get a job and get it yourself. So I did. You want something? Get it yourself. Earn it. That was kind of how it was taught. This whole engineering thing, again, this is not something I knew. You said that you, you liked engineering for whatever reason. You found it interesting. I mean, what gave you the, you know, quote unquote, audacity to go into something that had shown it to be not, not, not only difficult for women to be accepted, but dangerous? Did you ever make a conscious decision to say, fuck it, I'm doing it and I'm doing it in spite or was it simply you following the passion and you know really wanting to learn the, the subject? I loved math. When I was in school, public school and high school, um, no one expected women to even get math. And I remember growing up thinking, don't worry about it. It's okay. You'll, we'll get you through it. And it's like, well, I don't just want to get through it. I, I really enjoyed math. And people think of math as being abstract, but really like it's, it's logical right? Like you have a problem, math can help you solve a problem. It's very objective. I love the objectivity of it. Yes. Yes. And, and there's nothing that you can't solve, you know, and many other things like there's an art form, there's this, but you know, with math, if you can put a mathematical equation to it, you can solve the problem and you have a factual answer as to how you got there. I, I it's what I loved about it, right? Like I loved the process. I, so I just liked it. And I think at that point growing up, because my parents were immigrants, they wanted me to be one of three things. They wanted me to be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer, because that's all they knew. They didn't think about accountant. You know, it's funny, that never came up. Those were the three things that my dad said, okay, I don't have any boys, but I want you to be a doctor, lawyer, or an engineer. You know what I mean? Those are good, reputable jobs. So I, I picked engineer. So you spoke about your dad's successes, being a mechanic, buying real estate, probably in the right, uh, right times. So obviously, I mean, when I think of mechanic, I think of very mechanically inclined, obviously, which is which lends itself quite well to engineering in a lot of ways. I'd argue there's some DNA there, but we'll get to that, obviously. Talk to me about your mother. I mean, what was the, what was the role of your mother? I, I, I know that you were very, very close to your mother. So talk to me about what that role looked like as a child and how it morphed uh, throughout the years. Well, my mom's probably had been the biggest influencer to me. She was a stay-at-home mom, so she raised us. But like I said, she was the one that, she grew up in the war. So she grew up seeing what the war was like. She experienced the Holocaust because believe it or not, there were a lot of Jews in Greece and, and we, we hid them. We didn't give them up. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if you go back in your history books, but Greeks fought back. They did not want to give up, you know. Jews that were part of their community. So my mother witnessed a lot that she doesn't actually like to talk about. But what that sort of taught her is um, very forgiveness, kind, non-judgmental. And um, I could screw up in life and she would say, that's okay. You can fix it or we can fix it together. She was very non-judgmental and she was, she would never take no for an answer. It was like the ballet school, like Mom, I'm not getting in. I'm fat. There's no way this is going to work. But she was determined. She took me all across town to try and see if she could get me in anywhere. So it's like she never gave up. She was always there, uh, kind, and just it didn't matter what you did wrong. She would say, fix it. Own up to it. Fix it. We can fix it. Don't be scared of it. You know what I mean? So she probably had the biggest influence in helping me develop. You got to have a set of values, right? That they're developed from when you're really young, 
It could be your elementary school teacher or one of your parents or both your parents or your siblings. For me, it was my mom. She, she helped me develop the, these set of core values. Don't give up. She was determined. Be kind. Be compassionate. Don't be so judgmental, right? You know, give people an opportunity. So it was those core values, being, being honest, being trustworthy, being loyal. She, she taught me that from a very young age. Don't give up and work hard. Hard work, you know, you don't have to be the smartest, but if you work hard, it can happen. Yeah, no, nothing trumps hard work. I, I'm a big believer in that. You know, it's interesting. I think for young people listening to this, I faced a really big challenge when I entered the workforce because schooling was quite easy. It came naturally. I did extremely well. And you could be top of your class if you're just naturally smart enough or it came naturally to you quite easily. And the great equalizer as you enter the workforce is experience because you could have someone next to you that maybe isn't as smart as you, but they have the luxury of experience in that particular job. And there's nothing that trumps that, right? Like that hard work and experience play a huge role in your progression. So I want to talk quickly. I mean, you, you talked about going from teaching to designing, and then as part of the story, you just ran into forensic accounting. You talked about it like that's a natural shift, but that seems like a complete 180. So tell me about A, how that actually happened. Like, why would they bring you in to do that? That just seems so weird. And B, how much of your previous experiences helped you and, and how did it help you? You know, sometimes you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. And sometimes it's who you know a lot. It really is. So I agree with that completely. <laughs> It is who you know. So I, when I was going to school, I worked at this accounting firm, Don Raymond, when I was 16 through to 18, during tax season, in the evenings. And, you know, my, my, some of my good friends continued to work at this accounting firm full-time because they didn't go off to university or college. They just stayed there and worked right after high school. So my best friend worked with this partner, which was Don Raymond, then turned into Grant Thornton. But long story short, you know, got along really well with the partner there while I was there part-time. I was a horrible receptionist, by the way. And I remember actually some good advice that I was given at that time was, you're a horrible receptionist. Whatever you do, get a great education. <laughs> so I did. <laughs> that was important. But how it happened was my best friend was this partner's EA. And what happened was there was some misappropriation of funds internally by some of the other partners. So this was something that had to be kind of low profile. It was an investigation that was being done internally. And so they needed to do an internal investigation. Knew that partner from when I worked there. My good friend still worked there. And he asked her, do you know anyone? Well, Stella's kind of working on her own. You know, she went to engineering and he's like, oh yeah, engineers have better math than we do. Sure. She might be a good fit. So needed someone that he trusted on the inside to come in and do an internal review. And so you, me, good friends with his EA, knew I had the education, knew I could think. It's math, right? It, it's, it's literally... But forensics is more than that. There's math, but there's also that kind of human side of it where you just got to... You know what it is? It's determination, right? It is daunting work. You, you're stuck in a room with boxes and boxes of things, and you have to find patterns. And sometimes you're looking at things that don't make sense. You have to have the patience, the determination to get through it all and find patterns, right? And that's it. And it was just 
I didn't give up. I, I'm a little bit, I had ADD and um, I get a little bit of ADD. When I get onto something, I will not let it down until I find the answer. And so I was very determined for three months to find the patterns, put it all together. And it was very rewarding to just go through boxes and boxes of stuff that made no sense until you saw the patterns of what they did. And there's some commonalities, right? When you're trying to pick up in forensics, right? You're, you see some patterns, you see some common things. And if you have a photographic memory, you can pick out, wait a minute, I remember this entity over here. Now it's come up over here, but these two don't connect the dots. So it's, it's common sense, a lot of it. And, you know, a lot of people try and use this checkbox, go through your checkbox. It, it's, it's, it's not a checkbox. It's, there's a story. Numbers tell you stories. There's patterns. There's things. You take it, throw everything away, and just be determined to try and look for patterns and look for a story. Does this make sense? So it was just, it was just natural. It was just came natural. I enjoyed it. And that's how I got into this. So Stella, I know there's a lot of people that I speak to, even in my private life, my friends call me and they're in a job that they don't really like. They have a passion in a completely different area, but they got, you know, they have a kid or they're married and, you know, the perceived risk of radically changing one's life is just something that I think holds people back dramatically in their lives. I mean, from someone who's made such radical shifts in your life kind of over and over again. I mean, even, even joining Firepower was a not only a risk, but a radical shift after doing insolvency work for quite some time. What's that advice you could give to someone to you know, kind of give them the confidence to take that risk for all those people that are listening that, that would love to, but just say, you know, I, I just can't do it. You have to be prepared to lose it all. You really do for happiness, right? So I had a very secure position, certainly on my way to, you know, further promotions and everything, money and all there. It was secure, benefits, all of that. But I wasn't really being true to myself. I wasn't really, I wasn't able to give the value that I could give doing that somewhere else. I wasn't happy. I got to a point where I started questioning everything that I was doing. So what good is all of that security if you're not happy? So for me, it's you got to do what you love, right? You, you got to know that, okay, I'm going to walk away from this. This is exciting. This is a new chapter. I think I can add value. And I, and I think, you know, that part of the world it has served me well. And I got to look at it. It's set me up for this next phase in my life. I think you got to continuously grow and evolve and just be content. This is my last rodeo. Alon. You guys are stuck with me. I am just saying. Well, we're, we're, we're okay with that. So, I mean, one of the one of the patterns that you know, speaking of patterns, and I, I've had the luxury of speaking to a lot of successful people doing this pod, this podcast. And one of the things that I have seen is this pattern of seeking discomfort. And what I mean by that is, people like you and I, we get bored once things are easy. And for me, I, I don't really feel alive if I'm not in some way seeking that discomfort you know, have that, that anxiety, don't know what the future is going to look like. Does that play a role? Like you notice yourself not being okay with being okay in a way? You know what? I thrive in chaos. 
You know, when you when you think about it, my entire life was chaotic. You know what I mean? You know, going from being born to Canada, brought to Greece, things happened. It was very, very difficult time in Greece for those five years. Coming back, not knowing any English, challenges there, being a fat little Greek girl who didn't speak English, that was a challenge there. Just kind of navigating the whole kind of Western world, being in male dog. Yeah, everything was a challenge obstacles. It was chaotic. It was, um, to me, it's like, um, I like a good challenge. And it was, it, it was just, I think some people just thrive under pressure or under a little bit of chaos. And, and I think for me, it's, it's, how can I make things better? If things are too easy, what have I done? I think I've always been brought up, you work hard, then you know, you've earned something. So I think maybe that's part of it. I think things have to be a little bit difficult in order for me to get more appreciation or work harder. If it's too easy, it's, what am I doing here? It's like, I'm making this money. I'm doing this. I'm not challenged anymore. I'm not providing any value. Okay. Well, time for a new challenge to accomplish. I don't know. Maybe that, I I think I just thrive under chaos or, or, or a challenge. You mentioned an interesting word, which is like to appreciate the other side. Right. And, and, and I, and I agree. The analogy I use is Canada, the winter sucks. I hate it. Personally, I hate the cold, but when spring and summer roll around, like the, ima- the amount of appreciation I have for that summer is unbelievable. Or when we, we go on vacation in January to a beach, it's like, oh, and then I speak to people that live in warm weathers all the time. And like, they don't even go to the beach. They don't step foot in the pool. There's no appreciation for that weather. So I think you take things for granted. Yeah. yeah in a lot of ways to like live and appreciate things to the fullest extent. You have to have like the counter force to that to make you appreciate it. So I think that's a, it's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I I think it's one, you know, something that you've worked really hard for or something that you've had to face a lot of adversity or challenge to get there. Yeah. I, I think you do. You appreciate it that much more versus something just being handed to you. That is way too easy. So, so let's switch gears to the, the, the question of the hour, which is this nature versus nurture. You've obviously listened to a few of my podcasts and you know my view. And I think before this, you said you could be anything you want to be. And my comment to you was, well, that sort of mentality is the exact genetics that I'm talking about because not everyone has that attitude. And it's not because they don't want it. It's just that they don't have that in them. Like they're just not born like that. What are your views? Because I think that you disagree with me. What, what do you mean? Like, do you think that we are a product of our upbringing or are we a product of our genetics and what combination? I think more so a product of our upbringing because my, my genetics, really, I probably shouldn't be where I am today. <laughs> so I don't know, like um, genetics, you know, some people are, have a certain physique or, or a certain brain chemicals, you know, like, no, I, I think it's a product of your upbringing and every single experience along the way gets you to having that mindset, good and bad. Mostly in mine, in my mind, it's the bad that makes you a better entrepreneur. You have to face challenges, adversity. You have to know how to get out of those messes. You have to have lost a couple times to really know what loss is like in order to say, I'm never going to feel that again, or that will never happen to me again. And you learn. So yeah, I, I think it's absolutely not genetics. It is a product of your upbringing and the experiences that you have had along the way, both good and 
define you? I don't disagree with any of those statements. I just think, and I've said this before, that I believe that we are more pre-programmed than we think we are. You talk about your love of the objectivity of math. That resonates a lot with me because I am an extremely, my brain is extremely objective in the way that it thinks. I didn't choose that. From the day I was born, I, I naturally did incredibly well at math. But you give me a, a poem and ask me what the metaphor is, and I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. My brain just doesn't work like that. To me, that's genetics. So I, I, I do think that we are pre-programmed more than we want to admit, because I think that we want to believe that we have this limitless free will that I just don't agree with. I think that we don't have a limitless free will. So let me ask you a question. What if, let's just look at your family dynamics. Let's say you no longer have a mother and father and siblings. Your family dynamics, your, your parents have divorced. Let's just say you, uh, your parents didn't have money and didn't have the same opportunities to present to you. Do you see where you are now with any one of those two changes changing? Where you 100%. I, and that's why people get it wrong. I think nurture plays a huge role. And yeah. I always say that nature will take you to one little quadrant of the tree. But in that tree, there's a billionaire and there's a, a drug addict. All things are there. But I was never going to be a pianist. I was never going to be an author. You know, I was going to be in STEM one way or another. Some were there. So again, you know, nurture, I think, plays a big role in that, but I think nature does too. But yeah, it's just, I'm, I'm always curious what people think. And, and what's so interesting to me is how many people I speak to, and I guess because they're successful, you know, they think they could be anything they want to be. And it's interesting because I would argue that I'm speaking to people that have the genetics that think that versus it's the nurture that led them there. I think I agree with you to a certain extent that it is both because really I could never be an athlete. There's no way, right? So to sit there and say, I want to be an Olympic athlete, my body, and that has to do with, it just was not designed to be an Olympic athlete. Yeah, me, me either. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to take the same analogy into, you know, everything else, yeah, I, I, I somewhat agree. I think it gets you to a certain place. I think you're right. You know, some people are born to be neurosurgeons, have that fine hand, like it's genetics do play a role in whether you're an entrepreneur or you choose a certain profession. I agree. We started this conversation off and you specifically spoke about how you were, you know, one of three women to enter engineering. So I'd be remiss to not discuss the whole woman side of a woman being in business. You've had experience in numerous different industries. For the women out there that are listening, because I think you do a great job of, uh, unfortunately, I think women are, are painted with, if you're tough, you're the B word. And if you're, if you're not, you don't get ahead. So it's like, well, that's not really fair. That seems like a double standard. So for the women listening, what are some of the, the words of advice you would give them based on your experience, especially in the industries you, you spent a lot of time in being so male dominated? I tried at some point thought that I, that I needed to sort of be part of those women clubs or those women associations and thought that's how, you know, I would help to get mentored. But at the end of the day, I never really, look, there were challenges, but the people who mentored me and who helped me get through the ranks, I didn't feel like I was a woman. You know what I mean? Like I, I was a man, the same expectations were there. I was mentored the same way. You know, it's just surround yourself around good people, be trustworthy, be loyal, work hard. And 
I didn't really feel that there was a difference. I really didn't. In all honesty, I, I didn't, you know, but I'll tell you one thing. Don't forget the fact that you are a woman. I expected to, I could sit there and have a pretty dirty mouth myself in a boardroom. I could get pretty tough. I can get pretty pushy. I could take it as well. No problem. But you know what? I don't mind a man opening up the door for me. So don't forget you're still a lady. I think like, I don't want to be a man in a man's world. I want to be a woman in this world and that this is who I am. So I'm just a person working hard. So, and I still want you to open up the door for me. I'm okay with that. You know, it's your, your first comments around, I didn't view myself as any different. I think that if you go into a situation feeling like you're going to be limited in any way, I think it like it happens, like you, you manifest that in a way. So I think that's great advice where like go in and expect to be treated the same and expect the same sorts of things and you'll find that. Because I feel like some people expect to go into a situation and be treated differently. And I think that if you go into those expectations, you'll find that as well. Yeah, like I'm a woman, we're here to do the same work and you know what? It's okay, you can hold the door open for me because I am a woman. Like too many people try and say, I've seen this. You either go to too many extremes as a woman, you know? Um, You're either scared or you feel intimidated or you feel like, hey, are you treating me like a woman by opening up the door for me? And it's like, okay, that's just, just, we are men, we are women, We're, we're doing the same job, you know? And I like the door being held open for me in case you're wondering a lot. I will ensure I always get that door for you. Should I take that? Should we take that off? Maybe, maybe all those women are going to say, boo, what are you even saying? No, but- you know what? I, I actually love that advice because we spend so much time in society telling everyone that we're all the same. We're not all the same. And that's part of the beauty of life is that we're not all the same. And that's okay. You know, the fact that you're a woman and I'm a man, like, let's embrace those differences. Exactly. With my perspective, as do you, we're all doing the same job. And at the end of the day, you want to be treated like a man and I want to be treated like a woman. I don't want to be treated like a man. I do not. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's great. On that note, Stella, it's been you know, about 40 minutes and I told you I, I, would, I would keep you for that long. For those that are out there that you know, would love to follow along in your journey and, and also maybe get in touch with you if they're working on some interesting projects. And for those that don't know, Stella is on our private equity team. So uh, we're always looking for new opportunities, whether they be coming from the insolvency world, which obviously Stella knows a lot about, or traditional businesses that are looking for an exit. So what's the best way of being get a hold of you, Stella? Well, if you go to the website, our website at firepowercapital.com, and you can find me on our website, I think, or email. I'm on LinkedIn, absolutely. And um, SML is at firepowercapital.com. Perfect. Well, Stella, thank you so much for joining me. I actually learned a lot more about your background, so I'm uh, pleased we did this. Yeah, good. And thank you a lot. I always like talking with you. And until next time uh, on A Dealmaker's DNA, thank you. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed what you heard, rate us and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time on A Dealmaker's DNA, where you can expect the unexpected.